You ever had the feeling that people were talking about you? I bet LeBron James has that feeling about now. I bet Urban Meyer certainly has that feeling. Everybody's talking about them right now. Uh, And if you've ever seen a group of people clustered up in the hallway next to you, maybe your locker at school, maybe around the coffee pot at work, or maybe you've got some neighbors that are huddled up and they're talking across the fence. And you walk up and suddenly the conversation stops. And you could tell by the glances, you can tell uh, by the awkward silence and by the forced smiles, they were talking about you. You ever had that happen to you? Now, now, now some of that, granted, can be attributed to personal insecurity. It can be paranoia at times. Uh, in fact, if you ever go to a football game and when you see them huddle up on the field, you think, well, they're doing that just because they're talking about me. You might need some therapy, okay? But at other times, it's too real. And when you become the topic of negative conversation, doesn't it just make you want to stay home? Doesn't it just make you want to stay in bed, pull the covers up, uh, close the blinds, close the window? I'm telling you, it's the kind of thing well, that it will make you want to go to the well at noon. I'll explain that in a minute. We're in this series where we're trying to talk about what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And two weeks ago, we tried on a pair of flip-flops. And this weekend, we're going to try on the shoes of a woman who walked to a well in the heat of the day just to get some water. And we're using the illustration of stilettos, uh, high heels to represent her sultry past. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that everyone who wears high heels has some kind of storied past. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that she did. And by the way, I love this. When Joyce Gregg was doing the bulletin, she came in laughing. She said, Bill, did you realize when you said we're talking about stilettos, they chose the invitational song to be We Fall Down? (laughs) Had no plan for that. Um, But this woman had the kind of reputation that that invited people to huddle up and whisper about her. And with every footprint that she leaves in the dirt, you can see her carrying not just an empty water pitcher or a bucket, but you can see that she's carrying the weight of the emptiness of life. The emptiness of a life where she felt unknown, unworthy, unfulfilled, used, and desperately unloved. And I want to pick up her story in the New Testament, in the book of John, John chapter 4. The story begins in John 4 with these corrupt religious leaders. We met them two weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus' frontrunner. They're trying to stir up some really unhealthy competition between Jesus and the guy that we talked about two weeks ago, his flip-flop-wearing, locust- and wild-honey-eating cousin, John the Baptist. And when Jesus hears about this particular controversy that they're trying to stir up, he decides to leave town because he's not going to fuel any of that ugly, who's better than who kind of junk. And by the way, as a side note this morning, you know the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is always hindered when people compete against each other or compare church against another church or when it becomes a he said, she said thing. And I've seen that way too much in my time as a minister. That's why I love it when I get to see Christians partner up and serve together on various ministry teams and Bible studies and Bible home studies like we're going to start in September here at the church. It it brings help 
and it brings hope to people in this world because we're on the same team. Amen? We belong to the same family. We have the same leader, and His name is Jesus. And when we work together, when we celebrate one another, and we cheer on each other's successes and ministries, when we bear each other's burdens, well, I believe God smiles. So Jesus is not going to be part of any of these unproductive conversations and competitions, and so He leaves Jerusalem, and He heads back into Galilee in the north. And I know it's not going to sound very spiritual, but I think John 4.4 is a very significant verse. Listen to what it says. John 4.4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now you you hear me say that and you're saying, yeah, Bill, that's really profound. (laughs) That that really hit my spirit. It's life changing. But let me tell you, there's a whole lot that's packed into that little verse. You see, Jesus, he, he didn't really have to go through Samaria because there were other ways. In fact, every other Jewish person would Google Maps or ways that are right on a route on the other side of the Jordan River on the east bank in order to avoid having to step one foot on Samaritan soil because the Jews despised Samaria. I mean, you think that that unrest in the Middle East is a new thing? (laughs) No. It has been around a long time. These people had destroyed one another's temples. Samaritans actually scattered human remains and bones and desecrated the Jewish temple. It got so ugly that Jewish people were taught that if you were to pass a Samaritan on a dusty road and some of the dust that they kicked up got on your clothes, you had to go to the priest who would ceremonially wash you to make you clean because until you did, You weren't even acceptable to God because you had Samaritan dust on you. One of the stipulations, too, was that they could never testify in court because, and I quote, you had to be human. I mean, this is a whole lot more intensive than the Browns versus the Bengals or OSU versus Michigan, or or Cleveland versus the Golden State Warrior rivalries. Even though they descended from the same people, Even though at one time they believed in the same God, the Jews regarded Samaritans as religious and social half-breeds because generations ago they had gone against God's command and they'd mingled with the people of Canaan. They'd built their own temple and they allowed all kinds of idol worship and, and false kinds of religions to creep in and pollute their faith. And in the Jewish mind, There was no way that any Samaritan would ever be allowed in the kingdom of God. They were all, every single one of them, past the point of no return. And I believe that's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. You see, here's the first point on your outline this morning. Jesus seeks people who feel that they've reached the point of no return. Have you learned that about Jesus yet? It says about him in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man, he came to seek and save those who were lost. And so we read in in John 4, verses 5 and 6, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. By the way, it's still there. It's gone through all kinds of archaeological digs for centuries, and they have preserved it. And the scriptures say, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well, 
And now it was about the sixth hour. Now the Jewish day starts at around six in the morning. So you can do the math. You see, Jesus is sitting there at the well at high noon in the heat of the day. I checked my weather app yesterday for what the weather was like in the West Bank in Palestine. And I went back a few years. And right now, it's beautiful here. There it was 88, but the real feel with humidity was 97. The temperature this time of year near Sychar and Samaria could be anywhere from 75 up to 112 degrees. And you see, the well would have been a lousy place to be around high noon. You see, women in that culture, they would often go to fill their water pots uh, at dawn or even in the evening when it was much cooler. I mean, nobody, nobody came at noon unless you didn't want to be seen. Unless you didn't want to show up and, and, and hear the huddles and whispers and false smiles when you showed up. So verse 7 goes on. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then in parentheses it says, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible and about great uh, stories in our day is they have an A plot and a B plot that are working out. Seinfeld as a show was great about that. The Office was great about that. Uh, But there's this little B-plot going on in this story. Plot A is Jesus meeting with this woman. Plot B is Jesus' disciples. And do you notice where they are? They've gone into town to buy food. Samaritan food. Food that they were technically not supposed to ever even eat. Jews would often say they would rather uh, eat swine flesh than to have Samaritan food even touch their lips. And so you know, when Jesus sends them into town, that these guys are shaking their heads, and they're wondering, what is he up to now? What is he trying to teach us? He's always doing this. I think he's stretching us again. What does he, why does he do that so much? You know, one of the things I love about serving Jesus is you get to see him break down all kinds of barriers, man-made barriers. Here's the disciples, and they're buying Samaritan food. Here's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, a Jewish rabbi, nonetheless, associating with a Samaritan outcast, asking her for a drink from a polluted Samaritan vessel that's in a Samaritan hand that's touching it. This is an unheard of act. And then imagine being this woman. We're talking about imagining ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Again, she's coming to this well at noon for a reason. She's got a reputation that she's not too proud of. And I think she's just got her head down. She's just trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. She's trying to avoid all that small town gossip and the glare. And as she approaches this well, she glances up and here's a guy sitting on the rock base of this well. She looks at his clothing and she notices he's a Jew and and she's well aware of the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. So I'm sure she's thinking, oh great, you know, what's he doing here? Nobody's ever here at noon. All right, all right, just keep your head down, avoid eye contact, get your water, and get out. Kind of like some of you when you go to Walmart, right? You don't want to see each other. You just want to get in, buy your $100 worth of stuff that you went to buy $5 for to begin with, and get out, right? 
But the man smiles and he says, excuse me, would you mind giving me a drink of of water? Verse 9 goes on to say, the woman was surprised. For the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? You see, she knew the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And here's something that I hope you know about Jesus. This is the second point. Jesus doesn't refuse anyone. Jesus doesn't refuse anyone. I said it two weeks ago, and I'll say it again. The people that were least like Jesus liked Jesus the most. And he liked them. And I'll guarantee you, he likes you too. I remember a dear brother in Christ, Don Garner. He was a guy that I always knew where I'd find him on Sunday morning. He'd be standing at the church doors because he'd always invited somebody to join him. And he was expecting and waiting for them. One day he invited this guy to come to church who uh, resisted coming due to his past. He was ashamed of the things that he'd done in his life. And Don just kept saying, you know, come on, you, you got to come and go with me. And he said, like so many of you have probably heard from others, uh, I, I'm telling you, if I came in, the walls of the church would cave in. You know, nobody would sit next to me because they'd be afraid they're going to get struck by lightning. Well, he finally mustered up the courage and he came. Don met him at the door and and sat with him. And after church, he went up to this guy and and he just had tears in his eyes. And he went up and put his arm around him. He said, man, I'm so glad you came today. And I could hear Don and his sense of humor looking around saying, hey, check it out. Roof didn't fall in. (laughs) Check it out. Your clothes, they they don't smell like smoke. You didn't get struck by lightning. You see, I'm telling you, Jesus likes you. He does. And it's so Wonderful to me that when nobody else would, Jesus took the risk and he met one of this woman's greatest needs, one of the most basic of all human needs, the need for for company, the need for, for communication, somebody to talk to her instead of talking about her. Jesus knew she needed a man to look at her differently than any other man ever had. She needed somebody who would not refuse to have anything to do with her because of her past or her present race, religion, or reputation. He just knew she needed a Savior. And I hope that you'll catch this throughout this series, how how disarming and how inclusive Jesus is. His love breaks down so many barriers, and He will not refuse any who come to Him. I am so eternally grateful that Jesus didn't refuse to have anything to do with me. And he won't refuse you either. He'll meet you where you are today, who you are today, with your past, with your flaws, your imperfections, your screw-ups, your addictions, your bad habits, your shame, and all. That's who he wants to meet with. That's who Jesus wants to hang out with. He loves you. So if you've got an empty bucket... If you've got an empty soul, an empty life, you just bring it to him. And this woman says, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus smiles, I believe. And we're told in verse 10 that Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now remember, this woman has a reputation. And I think she's a little cynical. 
She's a little jaded at this point in her life. She has been talked about. She has been lied to. She has been hurt. She's been used. And I'm guessing that she's developed a little bit of a thick skin. And maybe she's thinking, wow, living water. Uh, that's a new one. I've never heard that one before. You know, I, I thought I'd heard all the bad pickup lines in my life. Like, you know, hey, baby, I could put you in the movies. Hey, girl, I could put you on the cover of a magazine. Or, or excuse me, could you give me a Band-Aid? Because I scraped my knees falling for you. I think she'd heard all, and that one's from, that's from Fritz, by the way, so thank you, Fritz. She heard them all. She'd heard every pickup line, and now she's thinking, living water? How original. But she plays along, and in verse 11, she said, Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? You think you're better than Jacob? One of the patriarchs of our faith? I mean, you must really be something, buddy, to produce living water. And I believe Jesus smiles again even more broadly. And we're told, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water is soon going to become thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I'll give to them, they'll never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now I'm imagining again in a little bit of a sarcastic, hard-hearted tone, the woman responds, well, woohoo, you know, that's just great. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to keep coming here to get water. And she spins on her heels to leave. And as she begins to walk away, this total stranger says, excuse me, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Get your husband and come back. And it stops her dead in her tracks. And I imagine she feels that kind of lump in her, in her chest that works its way up to her throat because she turns to him and she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. And, and can you imagine being in her shoes? Everything that she was trying to conceal, this man had just revealed. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. He already knew her. He knew her story. He knew her past. And yet, he cared about her deeply. And he looked into her heart. Now, here's the deal. I think she is why he had to go through Samaria. He loved this woman with a storied past. And he went out of his way looking for her. He does that, you know. He specializes in that. It's like the story that Jesus told about the shepherd in Luke 15, verse 4. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? He goes after the priceless one because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus will pursue you with a relentless love and he will pursue me like we are that priceless one, like we're the only person on the planet at that time. And he will ruthlessly come after us. I heard the story this week of a former Hells Angel, uh, a former gang member who was baptized into Christ, 
for his forgiveness and grace. And, and many of the hell's angels, they have a tattoo on them that says 1%. Now, I don't know what that means in their culture, but a lot of them have that tattoo on their shoulder. And, and he pointed to it in the baptistry when he was there with the preacher. He said, preacher, this is so cool. I just learned how Jesus left the 99 and he chased me down. Now, this 1%, he said, it's going to mean something totally different for me. You see, Jesus, he won't refuse anybody. Well, you also need to know this, and this is the third point. He knows our deepest thirst. He knows what we're really thirsty for. And I love how he goes right to the deepest part of this woman's life, to the place of her shame, right to the place of her humiliation, her pain, her longing, her desire, just to be loved by someone who won't turn around and walk out the door. See, Jesus doesn't need a bucket. He doesn't need a rope. He's already there. He already knows. And that living water offer comes up in Scripture again and again. Again, in verse 13, he said, anybody who drinks the water from this well, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give, They'll never be thirsty again. It's a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And you and I both know he was talking about a lot more than just physical H2O. He knew what she was hungriest for. And haven't you discovered in your life, I know that I discover all the time, the things that we think will fill us, they only last for a little while. And very soon we we become thirsty again. And so we try to fill up our lives with sleep or substance abuse or food or relationships. We try to fill our insecurities with weight and image management. A lot of guys in this world today, they run to pornography to fill that inner need for intimacy. We strive to overachieve and perform in school and on the field and the track and the court and the office in order to, to, to sense that every day at a boy or at a girl that, that we're doing okay. It's why we power up on people and we manipulate people in order to feel that, that we are more significant. It's why we even endure abusive relationships because we have a need to be loved and, and cherished with an unfailing love. And haven't you found that everything you try in this world, those things never last. They only leave us thirsty again. I love this obscure verse from Jeremiah 2, 13. God says there, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I don't know about you, but in the third grade music class, I learned a lot of songs. And isn't it funny how um, I can't even remember my own phone number half the time, but I can remember a song I learned all the way back in the third grade. Maybe you know this song, too. It goes like this. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Eliza, dear Eliza. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Eliza. There's a hole. Okay, maybe that was just in Kentucky and not you guys. Uh, Anyway, I'm so happy that one day I discovered there was a hole in my bucket and all the cisterns I was digging could never hold water. They could give me a quick fix, a a little sip that kept me going, but it was never enough. They never were enough to wash over me and quench my deepest thirst. Only Jesus does that and he continues to do it today. 
Only he knows the dry places of my heart and spirit. Only he knows the temptations and the struggle. And he knows how to provide the way out so that I can stand up under things. And while this woman is wondering where he's going to get in the deep recess of Jacob's well without a, a rope or a bucket, again, he's reaching deep inside of her. She's looking for a, a love. A, a love that knows about her past, that knows about her attempts to fill her life, and it's hitting close to home. And she does what you or I do. When anybody gets a little too close to, for comfort, she changes the subject. Or she tries to in verse 19. She says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. You know, our ancestors worship on this mountain. You Jews claim the place we need to worship is in Jerusalem. You know, we say Mount Gerizim is the place. You say Jerusalem is the place. So where is it? And I love the raw humanity of this woman. And Jesus cuts right through it. I mean, she starts by saying, okay, Jesus, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you for a little bit. Let's, let's talk about religion. And I think Jesus smiles even bigger at her as he kind of sweeps aside the intended distraction. And he says, actually, it's neither. <laughs> he says in verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, they'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. He's saying it's an inside-out kind of thing. Speaking of which, let's get back to you. <laughs> and he looks deep into her eyes, and I think he's saying, I get the feeling you would love to have some spirit and truth right now. See, I think, I think you'd like to know real love. I think you'd like to connect with a God on that kind of level that loves you, that can move past your past. So he's saying to her, listen to me, my dear priceless, precious one, God, the lover of your soul wants to connect with you. And I believe in that moment she starts to fight back the tears. And I think she says this next line in John 4 with an expectant hope. Could it be? Could you be? John 4, 25, the woman said, I, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. It's almost like she's saying, that wouldn't be you, would it? And it's only time, friends, before his trial and his execution, not before the crowds, not before his disciples or the religious leaders, but to a broken woman alone at a well at high noon, Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am. I'm he. Now put yourself in, in her shoes again. Not only had he spoken to her, a Samaritan, not only had this rabbi spoken to a woman, but the one lovingly looking into her eyes and into her shame-filled soul was God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the creator of the universe, the, the maker of DNA, the light of the world, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the source of living water was standing eye to eye with her, ready to wash over her soul and make her brand new and then we end the story with plot b <laughs> it's like those times in movies where not only the scene changes but you get that music lead in dun, da, 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 dun, 
And the disciples are coming back onto the scene. They're coming down the road with sacks of food from some Samaria drive-thru. Maybe they went to McSikers or something, I don't know. But But the Bible says just then, Jesus' disciples were surprised to find him talking with the woman. And no one dared to ask him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And leaving her water jar, I love that. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man that told me everything I've ever done. Their conversation must have extended beyond what we even see in Scripture. Could this be the Messiah? This barrier-breaking Jesus, he's at it again. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, stay with us. And he stayed with them for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. What an awesome picture to see this woman drop in her bucket kicking off her stilettos, kicking off her past, to go running back to town, to the very people she was trying to avoid by being there at noon to tell them about Jesus. You've got to see it. Hope is still sitting by the well. Not only does Jesus seek you, not only will he never refuse you, and not only does he know your deepest thirst, but you need to know he can redeem any life. Now, I know redeem is a churchy-sounding word, so I looked it up online. And this is the definition of what it means to redeem. To make something acceptable, to restore reputation, to atone for human sin, and to buy something back. Jesus can redeem any life. He went to the cross to atone for our sins to buy us back from our wasted years. And through his blood, we have been made acceptable into something wonderful. And our reputation, friends, is remade as well. This woman who didn't want to be seen in public at all, she's now a runner. And she runs back to town to tell everyone what's happened to her. That's redemption. And by the way, the the town named Sychar, it literally means falsehood. And God chose this woman in a town where she was living a lie to tell her the truth. He still does that with us today. And people that used to huddle up and talk about her, this woman who was passed from man to man to man to man to man to man. Now when people see her, you know what they're going to say? Hey, you see that woman right there? She's the one who introduced me to Jesus. Psalm 130, verse 7. It says, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. As we finish this service today, I want to make sure you heard that. Full redemption, not 80%, not 99%, but full redemption, not just enough, to make you feel less guilty. Not just enough to help you make it through this day, but full redemption. Jesus is in the business of redeeming people. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. And he wants to do the same for you.
Would you stand with me this morning? And friends, if you're ready to kick off the stilettos, you're ready to kick off your past and run to Jesus, this is the time to do it. It's our song of invitation, our song of decision. For some of you, you don't need to move because in your heart, you're already doing business with God. And you're saying, God, I, I know what he's saying. I know what your word is saying. And I need you to do for me what you did for her. I need to hear your truth. I need to be redeemed in every word, uh, every sense of the word. You just pray that where you are. Some of you, maybe you, you haven't heard much about Jesus before. And maybe this is the first time you realize how much he loves you. And he comes to you as though you were the 1%. And it's time for you to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And be baptized into his forgiveness and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you choose, before you come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I don't know how women walk in stilettos or high heels. I can't imagine how tired their feet must feel. But Father, I know for myself and I know for some others in this room, for far too long we've been trying to bear out under the weight of our sin. We have been trying to marriage, manage our marriages and our family and our work and our children and our faith and it's just all crushing us. So, Father, by your grace, would you help us see ourselves as you see us? Would you help us just drop the water jar, help us to drop the burden and the weight and come to you? Because I know your burden is easy and light, and only with you will we ever find rest for our soul. Somebody this morning needs to receive that, and Father, I ask you work in their heart by your spirit and do this in Jesus' name. Amen.